Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I have the pleasure of introducing not only an inspiring human being but also a good friend. This one is right up there for me with any other episodes I've done so far and I hope you can enjoy it too. Richard Holmes is a master's student in speech-language pathology at the University of Toronto. He's a TEDx speaker and finished third in his category at the International Toastmasters competition. He's a former professional mountain biker, and he's also a person who stutters. Here's his story. There's this interesting idea of disclosure when you meet somebody, and I thought that was really interesting, one thing that you've been talking about. What is the idea behind introducing yourself right from the bat in this way? Yeah, so I think a lot of the behaviors that stuttering is associated with are not necessarily the stuttering itself, but the extent people go through to make sure they don't stutter. And that's kind of a it seems it's sort of counterintuitive, but that's where the problem lies, is that reaction of trying to avoid stuttering. And actually, people have compared it to, um, like, come hang out, in that once you sort of just share this part of yourself, there's sort of a feeling of relief that's associated with that. So instead of when you're meeting somebody, you're not trying to hide this part of yourself the whole time that's already put on the t- table so you can just sort of be yourself and not have all that worry associated with your speech. When I first got to know you we were in high school and I can't even remember what grade it might have been whether it was 10 or 11. You were asking me before what my first impressions of you were, but granted also you looked a little bit different then. You were much a smaller guy. So that was probably my first impression. (laughs) Here's this guy who rides a bike, very small, and was just kind of like a like the joker of the group, I would say. I mean I I know you through a friend, mutual friend Nate, and you had a nickname at the time, Wee Man. And basically you were this guy who rode bikes and cracked jokes. And I probably, I'm sure I recognized your stutter at the time, but I think it's one of those things that once you get past that, probably that first time of meeting somebody, then it's, that's just kind of all that you, you know, that's just another part of that person's personality or their, uh, what makes them them. And you forget whatever else they just move on to other interests and things. Mm-hmm. Take me back to, the beginning for you, though, uh, when did it first become apparent to you that the way you talked was different than the way your parents talked or the way your classmates talked? Yeah, it's an interesting thing that I don't have a very clear memory of that's the first moment that kind of thing happened. But I there's sort of like a overlooming feeling of like anxiety when it comes to communication. So like the idea, I never... Like, if I went to a friend's house or something, even when I was really young, and, like, I met their parents and we would have a, have a, have a meal or something, I just associate that with this feeling of trying to either avoid having to be in that situation or all the things I would do to change up the words I was going to say, sort of like when they were going around introducing ourselves at a table, you know, spontaneously going to the 
washroom so I wouldn't have to introduce myself and just I always associated those social situations with people I don't know with this constant feeling of trying to avoid avoidance and hiding and sort of going on what you said I think the hardest part for people who stutter or I mean at least I can speak for myself is that it's that first time interacting with somebody that's the hardest or like let's say until you really got to know them because like you're describing at first it's perceptually something that stands out for the person. You hear fluent speech all day long, and then you meet one person who stutters, and of course that's going to be something that stands out strongly. But like you said, it's amazing that once we sort of know that's how someone speaks, we just sort of, in a way, just like almost smoothen it out in our in our mind. So we that we're talking to them, we aren't even hearing it. We're just hearing what, what they're trying to say, not how they're saying it. But what that means is that that moment when you have to meet somebody, they generally don't have a great reaction. And that you're able to see it on their face when you're talking to them that they're responding to how you're saying it and not what it is you are saying. So I guess as a child, when you're you know changing schools uh, every few years from like elementary schools, and I, I changed schools quite a bit, it was... And just meeting new friends was always this feeling of anxiety around communication. So I don't have a particular moment when I remember noticing I stuttered or spoke differently than others. It was more just I never thought of communication as an easy thing. Like I, I can imagine, or at least I never thought it was as easy as I think some other people probably would if they didn't have this challenge. A whole lot of things that I want to jump on in that. Yeah. Uh, first of all, really interesting that... That sounds a lot of parallels to social anxiety uh, around being in a situation and trying to almost make yourself invisible or get out of moments when people are going to be focusing their attention on you. Is that Was that attention uncomfortable to you at the time to have people looking and, and listening to you? Yes, I think um, l- listening to my speech as as it would be naturally 100% and actually what you said uh, about how you sort of always knew I, 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 I like to I always like to joke around and stuff like that I think I knew the attention would be on me so if I made the attention on something that wasn't my speech and maybe my jokes or that I was being like you know in school maybe like being a bit of a class clown or something I thought about this the other day that you know you've met other people who are the class clown or, or joke around. So you are, you have a pretty good understanding of how people will respond to that. But growing up, I didn't know anybody else who stuttered. So it's kind of this unknown that you don't know how people will respond to you if you really do just speak the way that would come out naturally. So you almost rely on other things to almost distract people from that. You talked about the reaction that you see on somebody's face if you meet them for the first time, what do you? Is it like a scrunching up that they that they do with their eyes, or what's what's the look that you get back when you introduce yourself and somebody hears you for the first time? Yeah, and I mean, you know what? I really don't blame people for it at all, and I want to really make that clear that I have no um, that I I I I don't ever get upset with people because I found that when I first went to like a big conference of people who. St- uh, her, I felt I was having those exact same reaction. 
participants. And it really shows that even though I have all this experience, it's just such a natural reaction to be surprised and to not know how to, and not know how to respond. But to answer your question, it's, it's that. So it's a moment of first, like, really sort of, like, taking taken aback sort of like scrunching some people really do sort of like raise an eyebrow and be like what the heck is going on <laughs> and it's kind of um and it can be kind of humorous honestly yeah. just to see that but then a big one that i find more upsetting or, or can really make me not want to communicate is if then i notice the distinct change from they hear me speak fluently i have a moment of st- Huttering, and then their speech gets very loud and very slow. So, like, they'll be talking to me normally, and then they're like, "That's really cool." Oh man! And it's just such a, and I, 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 you know what? I can be optimistic and think maybe they're in their mind thinking if they slow down their speech and show that they're in really control, that I'll help do the same or something. But it does. I don't know. I think. Sadly, people do associate the way you communicate with your intellect. So that's sort of the worst case scenario that sometimes people really do treat you in a completely different way after. Oh, it's so weird. I never would have thought of that. The other thing that uh, I know you've mentioned that people do, and I know I'm guilty of doing it myself, and, and I'm kicking myself for doing it, is interjecting and f- trying to wanting to finish somebody's sentence or what they're trying to say. Uh, I don't know why people do that. I don't know why I do that. But that's another big one, right? And, and something I wouldn't have thought about before. What does being on the other end of that, having somebody cut in as you're talking, what does that do for you? Well, I think it comes from what, like, what you were describing that, that you often do. I think is people, if they're having troubles finding the word they're they're wanting to say, you're just sort of helping them find that word by saying it. And then it sort of keeps the conversation rolling, which is, I mean, I think everyone sort of does that in day-to-day lives. We don't need to dive into that too much deeper. But when it's more that you know exactly what you want to say, that's when we're when, as a person who stutters, you're blocking on a word, it's not at all because you don't know what it is you're going to say. So when somebody jumps in, it sort of instills this feeling in you that if you hesitate at all in your speech, that person will not wait to hear what you're going to say. So going back to that, like, a lot of what stuttering is is that anxiety of what's going to happen with your speech if you're talking to somebody and you quickly learn that if you hesitate at all, they're going to hop in, you start almost being more anxious about, oh, I really hope I don't stutter on a word because obviously if, 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 if anything happens, this person's going to hop in. Um, so I think that's sort of the feeling is that it can sort of instill this feeling that that person can't wait for you to complete your in- entire idea. Yeah. And even more, just for the general public, I'd like to tell us to people that if you actually wait a little bit longer before you respond, it tells that person that they, if they, if something more would come to them that they want to say, it sort of provides this pace for, 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 for that to happen. So if you ever are talking to somebody and you want them to, you know, communicate more, give them more time before you respond, because then they'll feel more free to speak more. I think... It often comes down to 
filling in silences. People hate to hear like a silence or there would be a moment. And if you're working away at a word and and we're kind of just looking each other in the eyes. And and I think people, there's something that makes people uncomfortable about that moment of like, but it's a, it's a really weird thing. One thing that I think, I know, I think of the word lisp, for instance, mm-hmm. and just saying it, if somebody has a lisp, it, it becomes very apparent them saying the word lisp. With stutter, is it the same thing? <laughs> that I'm, I'm so happy you brought that up. Because <laughs> that is, I mean, I always, I, you've heard me in this interview so far that I stutter significantly more on saying the word stutter. Yeah. And I mean, it is actually like, just like phonetically, it has like a very condensed amount of the type of sounds that people tend to utter on more frequently. So it is kind of like that, that like, even though like, um, what's it called? An onomatopoeia? Like in a way, both both the word lisps and stutter are like that, and that like, the act that it is trying to describe is sort of what the word it, like ill is that's yeah it's it's kind of cruel that yeah. that the language has done that but i i was always always curious about that if that if that was the case you described a moment before in grade 2 you have a teacher and because of the way that you talk your teacher thinks that you have a disability that you are you mentioned before in our in our conversation people think it there's some sort of a parallel to your intellect what does that do to you being probably what 7 years old at the time hearing your your teacher uh whether it's that same sort of thing slowing down when she's talking to you and saying hey let's go over here now like what what was that moment like yeah like i have some vague memory of like my parents like first few weeks of grade two being brought into the class like after class and the, the teachers were talking about how she wanted to switch me out of the sort of normal streaming classrooms and to go and to switch into like a, uh, a classroom with more support and how she described that as being because it, she, she thinks it's apparent that I'm having that like uh, I guess my capability Abilities aren't the same as what the other children's are. It, it may have been that she thought there would be, might be more supports for my communication in something other than that room, which is um, a possibility. But I know my parents, who I really thank for being very supportive always, really took that, not like did not trust her on that, I guess is the best way to say, because they sort of knew me, even though I was very small, they sort of very much trusted that my intellectual abilities weren't weren't the weren't the problem at all. So I I so very fortunately was able to switch schools. But uh yeah, definitely like even at you know such a young age, have sort of these adults that are that you're hanging out with for for eight hours every day to begin to see you in this totally d- different way because of your speech sort of deeply roots in that idea. What is going on? I should mention first of all, you you're currently studying mm-hmm. at the Speech and Stuttering Institute. Have I got that right? 
Um, no, so I, I'm in the. I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> He's wrong. Yeah. Uh, no, so I'm 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 doing my masters at the University of Toronto here, and in, in what's called the speech language pathology program. So so that's a master's where we're um, specifically being trained to 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 become a speech language pathologist. So. Speech and Stuttering Institute, totally separate, something that would be more of a, a career path than an actual teaching institute for, for graduate students or something like that. But what I'm trying to get across is that you spent an awful lot of time devoted to how speech works, mm-hmm. how the, the mind works, and how we put together sounds. Mm-hmm. What's going on in a person who stutters head as you're trying to get the word out and it's not coming. Yeah. So I guess the simplest way of describing just like what, what a a lot of like neuroimaging research has shown is the, is the connection areas between sort of the, uh, where you're formulating what you're going to say. And then the parts that actually um, constructing like the program for the muscle movements doesn't seem to be as coordinated as it is in the people who speak fluently so it's almost like this whole very very i mean that's that that's why you can do it and you can research each for years and years and 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 really still it's 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 such a complex thing people can't understand understand hand it you know even even though people so i've been researching it for hundreds of years but um yeah the best simplest way to think about it is just that really intricate system that needs to be perfectly coordinated just isn't as coordinated so like right there on the word coordinated i can say it again and because i've sort of already gone through the motor program of how to say coordinated i can i can say it but when i first thought of the words coordinated Versus just to put together the the sequence of movements that has to happen to say that word, it just wasn't as coordinated. So so um, so you really don't know what's happening. It's kind of like it's like driving a car, and all of a sudden the you're driving along fine, and the end and the engine starts having some issue in the way that the fuel is being transmitted to the engine. Is there, is it a left brain, right brain thing where one thing, one side would normally be working, but it's the other one taking over? Can you, can you describe what's happening there? Um, so yeah, I guess like, I don't want to get too into the scientific stuff of this, but it's like basically about for 90, 95% of the population, all the language and, and, and speech areas, um, as far as constructing the speech and, and formulated into, into sentences and stuff is in the left hemisphere. Here, and then there's a greater portion of the activation you can see in the same corresponding areas, but in the right hemisphere for people who stutter. So that can just mean that if you think about it, there's a lot more, lot more traveling and communication of as far as between the different areas of the brain that's going to have to happen if it has to go back and forth between the right and left, or if it's only in the right, which. Um, which is just you know if you think about it the way his brains have developed doesn't possess the more those really specific control mechanisms that you have to have so there is some pretty clear 
differences in that kind of thing. And actually, I can speak on something that's kind of interesting is like in, 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 in everyone's speech. So like I talked about mostly being in the half hemisphere, but things like prosody and intonation in a person's speech is actually part of it that's controlled by areas in the right hemisphere here so what's kind of curious is like people have often heard that when you people who when they're singing or acting and if they're a person who stutters when they're doing those acts they won't stutter and if you and there's you know it isn't completely conclusive evidence or anything about this but it would make sense that then if that right hemisphere is what's being more used for speech and that's the area that still has the Porosity areas intact when you make a conscious effort when you're hanging or acting to use different prosody and intonation, then that's can help you facilitate fluency. Very cool. Uh, you've described it to me before this concept of a Chinese finger trap mm-hmm. where you are trying to. Well, that, that's the analogy you've used for trying to say a word. Uh, can you paint the picture, really, of, of what that uh, feels like and how it's similar? Yeah, so, so the, the use of that analogy is that, like, when you have your, like, if you have people who have used these before, you sort of put both of your fingers into, into this sleeve, and if you try to pull your f- fingers out as you normally would to pull them out as something that they feel trapped in, it actually wraps around your fingers more t- tight, t- and it makes it so you aren't able to remove your fingers at all. So with your speech, the why I like that analogy is when you have one of those words that you're stuttering on, the natural reaction is to try to push through it as hard as you can to try to get through that word. Especially if you're anxious about having the other person hear you stutter, the natural reaction is to try to get out of that as quickly as possible. But the more tension and force you try to apply that just gets you even more stuck in the stutter that you're having. So actually a lot of um, therapy techniques and things is actually of how to counteract that normal response you have so that you're trying to push, but it's actually an act of releasing the tension, you know, bringing back even things like, like people's heart rates when they notice they're getting stuck on a word. Cause there's so, there's so, so many bad experiences about it that their heart rate will really increase they'll have this really nervous reaction so how to not have that really tensing sort of fight or flight reaction is really what's happening so if you can counteract that it's actually how you can help someone's fluency a lot so i mean we've talked so far about what things were like early on for you grade two what does that progress like for you as you have that anxiety around stuttering and then you have an experience and then it, it it continues to build on that anxiety for the next time take me from that point in grade two onwards into your further years of your middle school and high school mm-hmm. so i mean regardless i can say separate of my speech being in school was very was very hard for me i think I mean, whether related to my speech or not, I had a lot of problems with anxiety and having panic at 
hacks. And that made just being in school very hard for me. And then on top of, you know, challenges with communication. And like I said, my approach wasn't ever to address those issues with communication. It was to find other ways to sort of distract people from that. So like if I were to like act out or like I, you know, I, I, I had sort of, I had gotten in trouble a lot while I was in school. That sort of just was my way of, you know, that was my sort of unhealthy way of coping, I guess. And um, so I really had a deeply instilled thing that like school for me was going to be a problem. I never thought I was going to be good at school. And I think it's interesting now that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm in graduate school, how I can do very well, but I still have a deeply rooted sort of feeling of what school is and that I'm not good at it, which is, I mean, ever since I've been in post-secondary education, I haven't had any problems with that at all. Mm -hmm. And it's just an interesting thing that how much those early experiences you have can paint the the mindset moving forward so when it comes to communication it's pretty hard once you know out of high school and stuff for someone to not be influenced by all those experiences they've had so as you were getting older did you find your stutter worsening like is the process of if you're continually trying to yank that finger out of the the (laughs) finger trap uh for years and years uh, did that just how wound up were you at a certain point Yeah, I think actually winding up is a nice sort of, uh, like, description of that. And that you sort of, like, from trying to, you know, pull your finger out after all those years, you sort of developed all these habits of how you're trying to do that or how you're avoiding things. So by the time you're, you know, out of high school, you have this, like, deeply woven sort of web of, you know, anxieties about speaking, these these sort of strategies, most of them not very successful that you've tried out over the years. So you're sort of lost that ability to just approach it as a blank slate. So I think a lot of it is sort of like slowly, piece by piece, working through all those sort of unhealthy compensations you have, like avoiding words or even things like a lot of like what are called secondary behaviors to stuttering so like not the actual stuttered speech but like you may have seen it in in movies where people stutter if if they're accurate um when people will do things like they'll um even things like they'll throw their head head back or they'll like repeatedly blink their eyes and there, there can be lots of these sort of associated behaviors that can actually be more distracting than the person's dysfunction fluencies and actually talking about that woven web how those usually develop or or once an ongoing theory of how it develops is that at one point in that person's life they threw their they they threw their head back in this dramatic way when they were stuck on a word and by doing that whether it caused it or not the person got through the through the word they were trying to say so sort of in like almost a superstitious kind of way, mm-hmm. you develop these associations between like throwing your head back or if you like 
blink your eyes a certain amount of times you'll get through the word. Now, if that were the case, we would be trying to learn that when we're speech language pathologists, but there is no proof showing that doing any of those things help. Um, so what usually happens is that person develops a habit of every time they get stuck on a word, they'll, you know, ha- they'll have these um, reactions. But, of course, those reactions don't actually help. So they still have the reactions, but it isn't helping their speech. So a lot of it is trying to unwind all of those sort of compensations that people have. What were your bad habits that you used to avoid your stutter or try What were your built-in workarounds that weren't really actually helping? So what's interesting is I like one of the most things I've focused on is not having those sort of secondary characteristics. So you've heard I still have disfluencies, but um, really trying to eliminate anything else that isn't just part of my normal speech. And but like I used to. sort of open my jaw about as wide as it could go and sort of like it was and I actually like like hurt like hurt myself a few times where I would open my jaw and then it would sort of like open and close a lot Uh so I would bite bite my bite my tongue and things like that would happen Uh which is like if you think about it like it's it's uh like describing it it's 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 almost kind of humorous that like even though we can consciously know that's not helping you, you still have that reaction. Mm-hmm. Now, tapping your hands and feet is something that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. There's some evidence that it can kind of help because if you like tap out, like if people speak to a metronome, like I talked about, like the, the prosody and the intonation parts of your brain, it can help sort of trigger a normal pace of speech that can help you sort of keep up that prosody. But that can be a very distracting thing if, if, if like, a person's sort of dramatically, like, slapping their hand on a table. That Mm -hmm. can be very uh, distracting. Another thing is I even find myself doing it now is I'll squeeze as, like, squeeze my hands or even, like, curl up my toes when I'm blocked on a word. And it's almost as if, like, applying pressure elsewhere sort of, like, to counteract it but that that isn't an actual helpful thing right it's just like a natural almost like it shows the kind of that kind of like fight or flight reaction that Mm -hmm. you're all of a sudden squeezing things and you're like it's almost like you're trying to fight through it it's like it's a tension is it a tension that you're feeling totally yeah so like people often will say when you're stuttering to just relax we've all heard Mm -hmm. that and it comes from you know it does there is a lot of tension associated with stuttering and it's more the reaction it's that trying to get through the word by tensing everything Mm -hmm. so definitely yeah the 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 less tension you can have it's just if you think about it like if you're throwing a baseball and like all the muscles in your arm and shoulder are completely contracted it's not going to be a very smooth coordinated movement so there is a certain amount of just like coupleness that would help but that's not the reaction you normally have (laughs) you at some point find mountain biking Mm -hmm. and biking uh to be an outlet for you Mm -hmm. as you were going through school looking for a place that felt like you'd fit in or felt you know at home to you and you find this where did you stumble across it and, and what did it give to you I honestly think like mountain biking and the experiences I had were the best things that could have really possibly happened that happened to me. I think what was very fortunate is I sort of got into it at a fairly young age. Like I think I like went to my first 
contest when I was 12. And I'd been like really practicing up until then. And then like I got my first sponsor at age, at age 13. And I just think, I mean, first I tried really, 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 really hard. And, and then I, and like probably practiced just so much more than I would have otherwise, because that was one thing I felt in control of. I knew I could go out and practice all my tricks over and over and over again, but I didn't know what to do when it came to, like I described school or my speech. So this was sort of one thing I knew what I could do. And, and I knew that if I practice, I could improve. So I just practiced nonstop. But more what I said, and the reason I brought up the thing about getting sponsored as a young age was it was such a just validating feeling where like at school, I wasn't doing well all day. Whenever I spoke, people had these reactions, but like, if I had these companies telling me that they thought I was, you know, that they wanted to give, <laughs> they wanted to give me their products for free and all that, it was just such like a, that was the one form of self-confidence I had. And I think I was able to, you know, when I went to university, able to apply that same confidence to, to university. But if I never learned that sort of association between doing really hard work and then having the reward and then when you you are rewarded you're able to you know like have these like sponsorships and stuff that was such an important association in my life because with my speech in school I wasn't I wasn't having any any where else that was a career option for you at one point and a career path for you was to you were gonna make a living being a, a mountain bike uh, what, mountain biker is that the right yeah, word? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so you're gonna make a living in mountain biking, mm-hmm. and you moved out west for it. Tell me about that time period. How old you were, uh, where you were, and what you were doing. Yeah. So right after high school, at age seventeen, I I, I moved to British Columbia, and so so Martin and I are both from on on Ontario. So you can imagine mountain biking in a place without mountains isn't quite as popular whereas it's like a massive sport in in british columbia and like really that that's where all the contests are and stuff so that was the only place to go that was my plan all through high school and i really was able to do everything i i wanted to out there i had like really sort of worked my way in um had some had some had some awesome sponsors um i i i was able to you know make a make a living entire entirely off that and it was it was really really fantastic but what actually sort of brought me back home the first time was that when I was out there and you know living on my own all of a sudden you know having to completely like (laughs) sort of fend for myself and like sort of at age 18 sort of doing all that on my own my speech came was definitely the worst that it's it has ever it has ever been and I think it was just um yeah the combination of just so many more sort of stresses in in my life and just like you know like I was talking about everyone I was speaking to was was somebody I would have to that didn't have any idea about my stuttering so it was just a lot of a lot of stresses sort of in that regard um so when you're saying that the people that you're speaking to I mean these are people who are meeting you at races or these are like kids coming out to watch you race or who are who are you talking to it's just just because you're in a new province basically 
Yeah, basically. So, like, and I mean, yeah, even just that, that, like, they didn't have any friends out there who I hadn't known for a while. So, and but even a lot of things, like, where I was finding it more challenging is, like, so I was still at that point using all the very, like, avoidance behaviors. So, like, I, it was kind of humorous. I remember, like, w- like, a big part is doing lots of, n- lots of networking type things. So, like, I would be, like, after a contest or something, you would be speaking to, like, the the managers of companies and and speaking to these different people and i found myself a couple of times want like you want to you want to you know advertise yourself as much as you can and i would give people a a, a name i thought was easier to say and that really speaks to that's just like I, I think about that now i think that's absolutely hilarious that i would rather this person not remember who i am <laughs> Even though I'm trying to do this as a as a career, yeah. Then just for them to hear me stutter, and that's just like sort of thinking about that now. That's really sort of speaks to where my head was at. That I was like trying to network and like you know open up as many business um, opportunities as I could, but at the same time I would do anything for them to not hear me stutter. You know. Oh, that's fine. That's so funny to me, and and I feel a similar way. In broadcasting, another industry where networking is so stressed as an important thing to do, uh, you have to maintain contacts, you have to go out and build your contacts as a reporter, talk to people, go out and introduce yourself to the mayor or introduce yourself to, you know, anybody at all. And for somebody who has social anxieties, getting into that situation, oh my gosh, even the process of uh, in the industry term is streeter. So you go out and it's basically a person on the street. Let's say you're just walking past somebody uh, on Spadina and you just have to stop the, the first person that comes past you and you're asking them a question. And then the next person that walks past you, you're asking them a question. And it's it's like a trial by fire for somebody who's anxious about those moments to just throw yourself into talking to stranger after stranger, asking them a question that you know they really don't want to answer. Uh, it's like it's oh my gosh what a what an experience that that is but but your situation of networking reminds me of of those sorts of things at some point in this experience you decide that what's most important to you is trying to almost unteach yourself and then reteach yourself so you go to the speech and stuttering institute Mm -hmm. and undergo what's called reconstructive therapy is or am i getting it wrong yeah just it's just like the sort of over overlying name for this kind of therapy is just like intensive speech therapy so like you described the whole idea is that you sort of go back to the very basics of basically learning all the parts about speech that make for fluent speech so even things like just one example would be like uh uh, one target and this therapy is called amplitude contour. So there's more of a tendency for people who stutter to turn off their voice in between the words or actually sometimes the syllables of a word. And if you think about that, every time you turn off your voice, meaning like your, your vocal folds aren't vibrating, that creates an opportunity for you to get stuck, right? So like sort of teaching that the normal tendency of people to keep their voice on between syllables and words facilitates more fluent speech. So there's, I mean, at this particular program, there's eight of those targets. 
and that you first learn to sort of break it down to the basics of what can facilitate fluent speech. And then another huge part about all um, therapy for people who stutter is like the is the more cognitive reconstructive point of the therapy. So to sort of really address and break down and then reestablish the ways you approach communication, those feelings you have and the anxieties about it. What did that give to you to get into the program and start to see results, start to see a change in the way that you were speaking? Uh, I'm sure it was hard, first of all. What, what were the exercises that you were given like, uh, the things that you were asked to do? Yeah, so it's like, I mean, just like you learn any kind of skill, it's actually almost harder than learning a new skill because it's like imagine you you threw a baseball a certain way your whole entire life and then you go to this place and you need to learn how to throw it like in a completely other way. So you not only have to sort of like override that old learned behavior, you have to just drill in the new behavior so like over and over and over and over again. So it's just lots of sort of just different practice exercises and the main thing is is breaking it down from the easiest situation to practice those exercises, even like in more speech therapy terms, like um, like work going from the single word or a single sound up to using a complex sentence up to then, you know, being able to, being able to tell an entire story while using the target accurately and then introducing those anxieties about normal communication in more and more complex and more difficult situations so that by the time you're done the therapy, you've actually practiced using this new way of speaking in every possible situation. Because what, what a big problem in, and sometimes when people try to learn something new is they'll, they'll, they'll learn something practicing at home. And then like, let's use that baseball example. You can practice throwing the ball in, in your, at your house all you want. But when you're in front of like, um, hundreds of people in a stadium, it's a whole other world, you know? So it's trying to put you in those really difficult situations in a controlled way to practice it. So that when you go in the world, you can actually use this new way of speaking. So now to go back to the question that I originally was going to ask uh, oh. before I before I wanted to know about what um, what exercises you were doing, uh-huh. what did it feel like then mm-hmm. to think, holy crap, I'm seeing progress, uh, these things are working? What are you thinking at the time, and how's it making you feel? For me, it was a very exhilarating thing, and that I was very excited by this idea that. I could do not even just speak with my voice, but like like you mentioned, I've gotten into like things like public speaking and acting and, and things like that. So I sort of like took it to the next step in a way that I like wanted to practice this new way of communicating so much. I would go out of my way to put myself in more challenging situations. So even things like you talked about approaching random people on the sh- read there was a point where i just like i i just would go up and do and like you know even just ask people random things or like just approach random people and like ask them about something random because that's for anybody anxiety provoking oh yeah someone who stutters and someone with anxiety about communication that's horrific so put it like i almost made it into a into a port where I was like trying to see how much I could challenge this new way of communicating. <laughs> Do you remember any of the questions that you would ask people on the street? Is it just like, can you tell me the time or is it something more elaborate than that? 
Um, so yeah, more, more, more situations like that. And then like, maybe you could like get the time from them and then like see something about them that's interesting and like maybe ask them about it and then sort of have a conversation. It's actually pretty surprising to think about how, if you just sort of, you can, you can sort of just like chat people up and if you seem interested in them, they'll generally pretty, (laughs) be pretty happy about it. Um, but yeah, it is, (laughs) it is kind of a hilarious thing. And that is such like a. A skill too, small talk, because it's something that I think so many of us are so bad at. Yeah, it is. You know what? It's just pure practice. The first thing that came to mind when you said when you approach those people to ask them a question they want to answer, the the first one hundred people, it sucks and it's yeah. awkward, and they just try to walk past you, and that's what happened to me too. But it's incredible. Like once you just get past that initial first step and you just practice it like any other skill you, you can actually develop your skills pretty fast uh yeah i i from my experience when i had to do that i broke it down into a numbers game where it's mm. just you know if you talk to 70 people yeah. maybe seven of them are gonna be receptive and so that's all i need i can just i, I need to get these you know seven people <laughs> out of 70 uh at some point to say yes and uh, and you would, I would think of different workarounds to get them to talk to me. So mm. probably the funniest one is that in order to keep somebody from running away from me from when I was talking or just having an excuse and walking away, I would approach people as they're filling up their car at the gas station because the, the hands on the pump, they're not going anywhere. They can turn around and like totally ignore me, but I'm still standing there. And that's much more uncomfortable, I think, for them to do than to just keep on walking somewhere. So, <laughs> which, is, which which made even worse by the fact that as I was doing this, it was often four in the morning. So imagine it's dark outside and somebody approaches you as you're filling up your gas. That's, that's like a nightmare scenario for the other person. They probably think wow. they're getting... Uh, robbed or something uh, and here i am sticking a microphone in their face but that was my that was my workaround for getting them to uh, avoid walking away from me <laughs> funny funny scenarios like that you threw yourself into it you went into public speaking and you went into acting places where you're forcing yourself to speak in what would previously be, I think, be a nightmare scenario for somebody. What did you learn in the process? Yeah, and actually what was actually one of the most rewarding things about that is to learn how much of communication is not the fluency of your speech. And that's, I mean, even with any any clients I see or anything, speech pathologist is like, that's there's so much more you can, like, that's not all of it. And I think when you're a person who stutters, you think that's, you really think that's what's holding you back. But I think just working on general communication skills is great. So like presenting was uh, really really cool, and like I like was into like competitive public speaking, where you would like you know like practice this one speech for months on end, and like you would and like when you when you move up the ranks and stuff, you would have a coach and stuff, and it was like my fluency was began not even even in my mind at all. Like I I just sort of never start worrying about that it was like like the whole the whole speech would be choreographed and like knew exactly um where i would be on the stage and and like how 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 i would be positioning myself when i was saying each 
word and like you know at this high and this high level of doing public speaking fluency isn't even like a part of it right Mm -hmm. so it's sort of and like that's like you know you're trying to like you're being judged on how captivating of a of a communicator you are in that so Mm -hmm. it's like and i and i would be interesting it never happened but i would be so interested to like do that same like really you know beautifully choreographed like practice thing. But if I did just have more disfluencies, I wonder how that how that would have impacted it. And my suspicion is that because of all the other parts of communication were in place, that wouldn't have been as important. Which is just a very empowering thing to to realize that the part of your communication that you are in control of can almost be more impactful. I did. I broke the golden rule of YouTube when I was watching your your TEDx talk, yeah. which you did uh, after you went through this uh, process. I read the comments section as, <laughs> as I was watching you talk. Oh, okay. So I want to get your thoughts on a few of the things mm-hmm. that were brought up in the comments section. Oh, cool. Yeah. First of all, did you know that uh, many of our world leaders are actually reptiles in disguise? And uh, no, <laughs> no, that wasn't actually in the comments section. <laughs> Uh, no, but uh, there is one person I was reading, yeah. and uh, their idea was that if you can, it's it's almost like a fake it till you make it. They they broke it down as a confidence thing, saying mm-hmm. if you are overly confident, if you have a high opinion of yourself, and if you think of the other person that you're talking to as almost being less than yourself, then it's not going to be a problem. Uh, do you do you want to take that one head on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so okay one one thing i would speak to with the confidence part is that if you can strip away the anxiety about worrying about how this person will react to how you're speaking you can generally focus on how you're speaking a lot more so if you think about like anxiety about speaking and and you know having a really low self-esteem about your communication abilities that's like carrying around a, a heavy a heavy rock when you're when you're when you're trying to when you're trying to do something so if you find a way to put so you don't have to carry around that rock that i see what that person was trying to say mm-hmm. do not agree with that idea about you need to put yourself higher than other people <laughs> i had I, I mean but you know <laughs> to each their own right but i guess it's that idea of like you're at public speaking right at the old saying that you're supposed to picture people in the audience naked oh. and that's going to make oh, okay. you comfortable i don't know if that's part of it or oh, not the other one uh somebody pointed out uh as you're doing this presentation saying look at his breathing technique mm-hmm. how much does breathing factor into someone's like how much does it factor into your into your thought process now so breathing is, I mean, so now that I'm in school for this, speech and like the movements of your your mouth, people is what people think about when they think about speaking. But breathing is what makes each happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like the coordination of what I was talking about, all those different areas in your brain, it's just as much the, the connection with the, the exact timing that your inhales and exhalations are timed. So if so... To, to onset the vibration of your vocal folds. And then, like, it's, it's, it's sort of everything starts with your breath. And a big thing that gets really tight in lots of people is all the m- muscles associated with breathing. So if that coordination is really restricted, like, 
that will really impact your, your fluency. There's actually some therapy programs that the only technique they work on is is breath. So in the sort of like mostly in the public speaking world, breathing is huge, and like because that's how you project your voice. Um, but then also in this in the, in the speech therapy world, they were very accurate to point out that I use very specific breathing hmm. techniques. One thing we haven't talked about yet: uh, you mentioned earlier, much earlier, that you went to a conference of other people who stutter. What was that like to be? around so many other people uh, because I imagine for many years you you maybe you meet one or two other people uh, or you see them in passing every now and then but then to be no longer the exception but see you know yourself reflected back in other people to be around other people like that what was that like some people describe it as being very very hard that they sort of especially if you know now it's it's a kind of hard thing to describe because like there's just as many as people are who stutter. There's ways of stuttering. So seeing it as a reflection of yourself isn't actually that accurate because it's mm-hmm. like the vague thing that you have disfluencies is the only thing you really share in common. Right. Yeah. I guess it's um, like you know there's many Canadians, but that's one thing we have in common amongst many other things that make us individually unique. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Like it's. But so actually speaking on that though, that's what was most profound about the experience was there's I didn't notice there was some characteristics and just like personality traits or things I thought I wouldn't ever be able to be or things I wouldn't be able to accomplish and I didn't wouldn't ever overtly say it was because of my speech but like maybe I wouldn't think at like a thin inner conversation that I'd be the most outspoken and sort of like directing the room but when you have 1,000 people from all walks of life who utter you actually get to see every possible combination of you know of characteristics and personalities and i think what was so that was was really inspiring to me is just like realize there is nothing holding you back because of your speech and i could have told myself that a thousand times and i could have been told that in speech therapy a thousand times but to see that person do the things i would never associate with stuttering really just put in place that this that your um stuttering can be nothing more than just more than on average more disfluencies in your speech than other people and that was like a really crazy realization for me you're now as you mentioned earlier in school speech language pathology at the university of toronto Mm -hmm. doing something that is so hand in hand with what was a help to you. You get to, in your line of work, help other people uh, with their speech. What's that like for you, that full circle experience? Yeah, it's actually, um, I mean, I, that's why I just couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. And I'm a very, very, and I mean, it's such a f- fortunate position to be in, to be honest. That like, even though, you know, there's still this thing I need to work on and deal with and it's, has a lot of challenges in my life. It's really brought me to like to wake up and like I'll never dread going into work just because like there's always a part of me that just knows that like this is like I just have such a more personal involvement in it than I think I, I would be able to have for 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 any other careers. It's a little bit hard in the, that time too that like 
if you're working with a client that's having um, a lot of problems and isn't really responding to the therapy you have, it's really hard for me to sort of brush it off because mm-hmm. I sort of like put myself in their shoes and just like, and I know going through through therapy, if you don't think the therapy is working, that can be a really fr- frustrating thing too. So I think, yeah, there's, it's like, it's a real blessing to have this much personal involvement, but there is, there is definitely, there is definitely sides to it that makes it so I sort of probably bring my work home a lot more. Mm, yeah. Uh, have you ever, uh, I'm just thinking of the experience of somebody coming in for help mm-hmm. and then the, the guy that's helping them opens his mouth and stutters and they think, oh man, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that that can be a really cool moment for, for bonding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also imagine, oh, what I get this guy for? <laughs> totally. You know, you know what? That is probably one of the biggest things I struggle with right now, yeah. to be honest. I think, so speech pathology, it's very, like very hard. Like I feel like unless you've seen a speech pathologist or you know somebody's speech pathology, you don't really know what it actually is. Mm-hmm. So uh, uttering is the smallest part about what speech pathology is. So, uh, I mean, everything from solely doing ass- assessments and treatments for people in hospitals, geriatric clients who have mm-hmm. swallowing problems. You can have an entire speech-language pathology career and mm-hmm. without doing s- language or speech. So, mm-hmm. so, so, so there's that side that's completely removed from speech or language totally um and then everything in between so people who 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 have had who have had strokes or other kinds of brain injuries and how that impacts language and communication more structurally related things like even even after people have had various surgeries and stuff so and then there is also the 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 whole industry around the love fluency so my experience is when i'm working with clients who who utter it's very much like you described they're very happy to have that experience because it's such a feeling of isolation and that people Mm -hmm. don't understand so it's almost like instantly they understand with the other clients i you know i've maybe focus on my fluency a little bit more because i don't want my them thinking about what's happening with me to Mm -hmm. to distract distract them at all um, but at the same time, what's changed over the years that I've gotten into it is I now no longer think of myself as only connecting with people who st- who stutter because of the sort like the real break it down. It's just about communication, and it doesn't matter what the impairment is that's preventing you from communicating the the way you want to. I think that fundamental experience of not being able to is what all of us can can, can share. There's also the thing, and I've sort of I make jokes about this. Is it's sort of like if you go in to see a personal trainer, right. and if that person's not in as good of shape as you <laughs> as what you want to be, right. you're kind of like, well, what the heck's happening? But the way I see it is, maybe I'm a personal trainer that's not in as good of shape as maybe what you would Im- imagine. But I, if I if, to make that analogy, I wake up at. 4 a.m. Prepare every meal I'm going to eat to be as healthy as possible, and I'm and I'm constantly exercising. So even though my result isn't that I'm in this really awesome shape, I'm doing all the things you would need to do. Right. So even though my speech isn't ever going to be completely fluent, 
I'm doing a lot, yeah. <laughs> right? So that, yeah. So, so I usually just, I, so whenever someone asks me about it, I just kind of frame it that way. Yeah. There's another question, uh, and maybe we'll we'll wrap up with this one. It's been asked. I think you said it's it's a common one for people when they meet. If somebody who has a stutter could take it away, you know, at the snap of a fingers, uh, would they or not? And often you say the answer is no. Mm-hmm. What has this given to you that you wouldn't otherwise have have experienced? How has it enriched your life? I really think of it as if I need to be so much more conscious of the words I say, and like if I'm gonna say a word, I know there's just there's a good chance it's not gonna come out easily. I think that's really carried over to everything else that any choice in careers or, you know, relationships or just how I spend my day-to-day life, nothing is going to be easy ever for, for, for everyone on this earth. There isn't anything that's really easy. So you're going to have to put up with some frustrations and struggles and there's, there's nothing, things are going to be hard. So if you do it for the reason that's meaningful to you, that's what makes those things worth it. So like, I think I'm very fortunate that like, any career I would choose is going to have some definite hardships. Any interview I have, I have to sort of overcome that initial thing about my speech. So I'm not going to interview for a job that I'm not really interested in. And I'm not going to choose anything that I'm not really, that I don't have more of a heart in. And I think if I didn't stutter, I might be likely to just choose what I think is just sort of not easiest, but just like sort of like falls into place. And it's not necessarily that my heart is all in it. So I really think that like, and honestly, that isn't just me. Like like people who, 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 who stutter that I've met at conferences and people who are from all around the world, it's a very common trait that they're just, their heart is so much more into every, everything because they almost don't have a choice. Anything I haven't asked you that you wanted to get into or uh, or feel that you haven't been able to touch on yet? Maybe just that, and I, I, I've spoken about this before, that like stuttering can take on lots of different shapes and forms. And like what you can hear about, and like there's different situations that for totally different people are much easier to maintain flu- fluent speech in. So, like, when, when I do a presentation in front of the class, probably from years of doing public speaking, that, like, I just, fl- disfluencies probably aren't going to happen. If I need to order my coffee at Starbucks still, and then there's a great big line behind me, even though I use, I'm using a lot of techniques to bring down my anxiety with the situation, it's still, it can be hard. Okay? So... Just because you meet somebody in one situation and they're fluent doesn't mean this can't be a huge impact on them. Um, and I think people have this association that the more disfluent your speech is, the more of an impact it'll have on you. But that's, I'm actually so amazed that that isn't the case. And I know some people that are really severely disfluent and like, you know, have just come to such good terms with it and they're in a, and they're in a really good place. And there's some people that talk about they haven't, stuttered since they were almost then since they were in high school and these people are you know long into their careers and they still and they still every day won't raise their hand or speak up for themselves and have more of the issues you'd associate with it so i think yeah just having the understanding that 
and sort of something that I know is very um, near and near and near and near and dear to you is that what you can't see is often more important than what you are what you are able to so I think just like trusting that if a person says this is a challenge for them that's the experience that person's having and like your 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 evaluation of how of how many struggles that person has isn't (laughs) isn't really going to help them Mm -hmm. so just to believe that not that things aren't always as they thanks very much for the conversation it's been really nice That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you did, do me a favor. Hit that subscribe button. There are more episodes on the way. Also, leave a rating and review. It helps a ton. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Next week on Story Untold, I talk to a Gatineau couple living out of a van for two years and how it all ties into a search for happiness. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time.